I'm Caleb Brown, and I'd like to take this small bit of time to ask you to support the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast by becoming a podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and give a donation in any amount to support our work. If you support us with $1,000 or more before the end of the year, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate a friend or loved one to receive that benefit. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you for supporting Cato and the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Creating effective policies means understanding people. Kevin Williamson is author of Big White Ghetto, Dead Broke, Stone Cold Stupid, and High on Rage in the Dank Woolly Wilds of the, quote, Real America. In it, he details the lives and challenges of a wide variety of people. But if you're looking for a magic formula to guide policy, he says you'll be out of luck. We spoke last month. You begin this book. I cracked it open uh, a couple nights ago in Owsley County, Kentucky. Uh, I tell people that I can tell if somebody's never been to Eastern Kentucky because they make fun of it. And having spent some time out there, it is a vexing problem in the elusive quest for growth. I remember the economist Bill Easterly pointed out that some of the most impoverished. In fact, I think 19 of the 20 most impoverished, virtually all white counties in the United States are in Eastern Kentucky. And it's a, it's just such a, it's such a vexing problem. So in your observations there, what did you learn? Um, I'm not sure I think there's a problem because problems are things that have solutions and uh, this doesn't I think the, the really striking thing about Owsley, Kentucky, as opposed to places like, uh, say, Harlan, you know, and in Harlan, Kentucky, the economic troubles there have largely to do with the decline of the coal industry. And that's a story you see in lots of other places around the country, whereas community has been built up around a particular business and that business goes away, it changes for some reason, and um, and then they suffer for it. But there was never really anything like that in Owsley County. It's always been a relatively poor place, as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, kind of agricultural, some, you know, forestry business, that sort of thing, but not a lot of um, enterprise. I guess there was uh, maybe a washing machine factory there at one point uh, some years ago. People still remember. I think what you see in, in, in Elsie County and a lot of places like that, and a lot of rural poor places, is essentially places that have always been poor and their poverty looks more striking by comparison as the rest of the country gets wealthier. So, you know, my uh, my father grew up in, uh, you know, farming country in North Texas in the uh, Depression, you know, and old fashioned poverty of, you know, no shoes, no indoor plumbing, that kind of stuff. Not the stuff we talk about when we say poverty now. And um, but, you know, it's, it's it's sort of a cliche and a joke, but it's also true that they they didn't know they were poor because everyone they knew was just like them. Uh, but that's not really the case anymore. The rest of the country doesn't really look like um, Eastern Kentucky anymore. And that kind of poverty is now very striking, I think, to us. Why did you choose the places you did here? Uh, Owsley County, Kentucky seems obvious to me, but some of the other places don't. Yeah, Owsley County, I, I feel slightly bad about because um, Owsley County gets a lot of journalist visitors. It's uh, because it always comes up in the census as the poorest place in America. So everyone wants to go see the poorest place in America. And, and you make note that you made note that uh, they defend that title, that it's a badge of honor somehow. Well, I don't know that they're super proud of it, but uh, they've lost it and reclaimed it uh, more than once, as I understand it. 
But, you know, you go down there and you start talking to people and everyone is like, oh, yeah, we had a guy from the New York Times down here last year in the Washington Post, people here the year before. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of on the beat, you know. Um, the way I, I tend to work on stories like that, though, is that I um, I pick a topic and I pick a, a general kind of region. And then I just kind of get in the car and drive around and talk to people until I find interesting things and uh, and people who have interesting things to say. So I go in with all of the usual, you know, kind of reporter stuff you do where you, you know, I interview the local police chief who turns out to be a really interesting guy and uh, lady who runs the local newspaper and, and those sorts of people. But most of the really interesting conversations aren't with, uh, you know, municipal leaders and mayors and public officials and that sort of thing, but just, you know, kind of ordinary people and getting their perspective on what's going on. And these pieces for me are more about reporting than they are about arguments or, or ideology. I think there's some value in just learning what life is actually like in these places. You know, what do people do all day? How do they make their living? Um, we all, like, for instance, sort of know that welfare fraud is kind of a big thing in some parts of the country, but how does that actually work? And I was able to learn some things about that, which was, I, I thought, really kind of interesting the way that um, cases of soda are used as a kind of wampum, you know, a kind of ad hoc currency. And uh, that sort of thing, I think, is really, really quite interesting. And, um, you know, I have a thing I call Williamson's First Law of Politics, which is that everything is really simple if you don't know anything about it. And the more you learn about things, the more complicated they get. And I think a lot of people, myself included, look at these sorts of situations and say, well, obviously, the problem is, you know, lack of investment and people need better skills and better education. And if they had that, these things would happen. And the more I learned about it, the less simple and less obvious those things become, you know, one of the things someone said to me down there was, um, I thought really interesting that basically they have an adverse selection problem where all the people with any skills or education or acumen for these things leaves. They go elsewhere, they work in other places, they find jobs, because there's not a lot of work there. And um, so if a company like Google or Facebook or Amazon were to build a data center there or some kind of facility, they'd have to bring in all the workers. Uh, the people who live there wouldn't really be able to do that uh, kind of work. And getting them from where they are to where they could take a job like that is just something that's not really very likely to to happen. There's not really a public policy fix for that. Yeah, you made note of uh, the fact that the Toyota plant, where they make a lot of uh, hybrid Camrys in Georgetown, mm -hmm. Kentucky, is two hours away on a good day. Yeah. Uh, Walmart is uh, at least half an hour away. Uh, and UPS or FedEx drop boxes are about 20 minutes away. So even even for somebody who's uh, wanted to, who made good and wanted to return to their community, uh, the costs of doing that in uh, very poor places in the United States can be exceedingly high. Yeah. And even, you know, for someone like me, these very mobile workers, it would be hard for me to live there just because there's no access to high-speed internet, that sort of thing, or in a lot of these kinds of communities. Uh, in fact, that was something I was reading about earlier in the week where the uh, town fathers of Monahans, Texas, which is a little small place out in West Texas, are just sort of trying to move heaven and earth to get themselves uh, you know, proper access to high-speed internet out there with the belief that as people start looking for places to relocate to out of cities and things like that, and more people are comfortable working remotely and uh, and like the, um, you know, the outdoors and the opportunities of living in a you know, small place that's close to nature, but they need at least some of those connections as well. And one of those things is, is high-speed internet service. So in terms of you know policy and investments and that sort of thing, that's maybe one thing that could be encouraged that would help some of these places. But um, there's not going to be some you know 
Appalachian enterprise zone that that turns the, the region around. It's just not going to happen. The problems that you describe here, and, you, and I understand that you might not view them as problems because, as you say, problems have solutions, but these problems have been vexing for decades. I mean, I've been talking to uh, Kentucky politicians for a long time in, in my years as a reporter and beyond then, and they don't have any better idea about how to fix it than I do. Yeah, I mean, we've got, you know, that famous iconic picture of Lyndon Johnson standing on that guy's porch out there um, announcing the um, the launching of the, the war on poverty. And there was a war on poverty. And as they say, poverty won. Um, you know, poverty is fighting poverty is like fighting gravity. You know, it doesn't mean you can't build an airplane, but the forces are always still there. And it's a uh, it's a constant you know battle that requires energy on one side against reversion to the unfortunately poor and desperate human norms. So um, we have, uh, because we're Americans, we're really good at engineering. Anything that we can reduce to a kind of engineering problem, whether it's actually an engineering problem or a kind of policy and social engineering problem, we can solve things like that. If we can say, here's where we are and here are the steps we have to take to get to where we want to be, we're really good at solving those sorts of things. But the, the issue with how life is lived in these kinds of unconnected, often isolated, poor rural areas is not an engineering problem. It's not something that we can fix by changing the way public schools are financed or changing the tax treatment of investments or, or anything like that. There isn't going to be some big Appalachian enterprise zone that, that turns life around there. It's just not going to happen that way. It's more of a, a fact of human life that has to be managed and dealt with and taken into consideration, but isn't going to be solved per se. So how can we remain uh, sympathetic? Mm. And uh, yet offer any, I mean, do you really believe that there's no solution to this? Um, yeah, I really, I really believe there's no solution. The, the, the notion that there are these large pockets of poverty throughout in, in various parts of the United States concentrated in uh, some places more than others and where economic development in its most basic sense can occur. Yeah, I think we essentially have two choices. We either help people to become economically self-sufficient, which in many cases is going to mean moving to a place where there's more work to be had and more resources, or we maintain them in some kind of dependency indefinitely. Um, now, we've got the resources to do either one of those things, and of course, we'll end up doing a combination of, of both of them. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not someone who wants to uh, abolish the welfare state. I think there's a role for that, that sort of thing, and obviously, we're not the kind of country that's going to let people uh, starve to death or, uh, you know, live in that kind of, uh, really serious misery. Um, although we do tolerate relatively high levels of, uh, poverty, but to the extent that something can really be done about this from a policy point of view, the one thing that I've suggested, which I think is maybe worth pursuing is, um, repackaging some unemployment benefits as relocation benefits, um, to help people to go where the jobs are. And that's kind of the, um, you know, my, my longstanding debate with my colleague, Michael Brendan Doherty, about these sorts of communities. And his question is, you know, well, what about the value of this community as such? And my answer to that, which is, I think, unsentimental, but, but true, is that um, if the community doesn't have anything to offer you except for poverty and misery, then you should leave. And if the community doesn't make it, the community doesn't make it. Because our, our policy should be oriented toward people, not toward places. And there are a lot of towns that come and go and, uh, you know, great cities of antiquity that didn't survive for one reason or another. And 
there's something lost with that. Sure. I mean, I do take a kind of, you know, Berkeyan view of the value of those places, but life is about trade-offs and sometimes this is the trade-off you have to make. I think that is a solution tailor-made for uh, politicians at all levels to simply dismiss it. Yes. <laughs> uh, in, in part because politicians are people who represent places. Yeah. Um, although ultimately, when those places don't have people in them, the power of being the person in that place goes away, as we're seeing in you know states that lose congressional seats and, and areas that lose representation because the way the uh, population has um, has shifted. That's a real problem, I think, especially for Republicans, something I've written about a lot, because they are very uh, tied to uh, rural areas in many cases. And as the country becomes more urban and suburban, which even with COVID and all that sort of stuff doesn't seem like something that's going to be really reversed, although it may slow a little bit, um, they're going to have to figure out a way to, um, to conjoin those conversations, to understand that there are points of commonality in the interests of people in rural communities and people in urban communities. And uh, no one really has any great, you know, investment in poverty. There's always this kind of conspiratorial view of things that, well, they keep people poor for this, that, or the other reason. But um, no one wants people to be poor because it's really hard to make money from poor people. <laughs> you know, they don't have a lot to spend, you know, hard to sell a poor guy a new car or a house or something like that. Um, we've all got an investment in greater and more widespread prosperity. Um, it just simply... Prosperity itself solves a lot of social problems, or at least mitigates them to the extent that they seem a lot less urgent. But there's no magic formula for it. And if there were, you know, people would do it. That's one of the interesting things, I think, about our political discourse. And, and one of the ways in which it's really stupid is that we, we act like there's some magic thing that presidents could do to make the economy grow if only they really cared, if only they were the right sort of person. Well, if only for reasons of, you know, cowardice and narrow self-interest. If there were a formula like that, every president would apply it in the same way and every Congress would apply it in the same way because there's no political juice in making people poor. Tell me about pornography in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, you know, I'm a big uh, David Foster Wallace fan and um, I'm a huge David Foster Wallace fan. And he wrote a very famous piece on this annual event that happens in Las Vegas called the Adult Video News Awards. It's kind of the uh, Oscars of pornography, they call it. And that was back in the 90s. And I decided to do a version of that my, uh, myself, partly because I was living in New York at the time, and uh, it's a good time to go to Vegas when it's uh, nice and warm out there. Um, so they have this enormous convention, and it's um, I don't know, thousands of people go, I guess. And it's, it's, it's a weird thing because partly it's sort of like, you know, a Comic-Con for porn where fans go and meet people who are performers and that sort of thing. But it's also like a regular straight uh, business convention where the meetings, the meetings that aren't public are people talking about FDA compliance and banking problems and, you know, how to deal with taxes and where to get a good lawyer and this sort of stuff. And they sound like dentists, you know, or people who sell, uh, you know, people who sell industrial rubber gaskets or something like that. It could be could be any sort of business. What really struck me about that was um, there are people who travel like, from other countries to attend this convention who are just fans. They're not professionals. They're just there because they want to meet porn performers and, and come to this convention. Uh, a lot of them elderly, you know, in some of them in wheelchairs and, you know, mobility devices and things like that. It's very expensive. Like, you know, I think a full weekend pass is over a thousand dollars, something like that. So it's not just something you do on a lark. Um, uh, because you're in Vegas for other stuff. People come to go to this thing. And porn is kind of in an interesting place because um, 
it's really hard to make money in it now. Uh, because once upon a time, pornography was magazines and video cassettes and things like that, which are pretty easy to sell and make some money off of. But now it's all, of course, on the Internet and it's hard to get people to pay for it that way. So it's a it's a it's a very weird kind of thing where you've got this old guard of people who kind of came of age in the uh, period in the porn business when it really was kind of big business. And they're all like Hollywood types, you know, with sort of, you know, sandy hair and, uh, you know, tanning beds and that sort of thing. And uh, they all look like they're on very sensible diets. Uh, they, they, it's very, you know, kind of Los Angeles entertainment types. They're not guys, you know, running around with their shirts unbuttoned to their navel and a big gold chain. And they don't look like Ron Jeremy, although I ran into Ron Jeremy uh, there. And But then you've got this sort of new breed of people who are essentially internet entrepreneurs who are the ones who are trying to figure out how to actually make some money from this. And then you've got the, uh, the fans who are, I think, a... Uh, you know, a pretty sad uh, group of people. And one of the things that really was striking to me about that is the way in which pornography has become for some people not a kind of last resort substitute for sex, but an end in and of itself, you know, something they seek out on its own terms. And that I think is a really interesting social development as, you know, sex becomes, for some people anyway, uh, completely, literally dehumanized. So divorced from the other relationships that we would otherwise have that accompany a sexual relationship. Yeah, um, there seems a, there's a, a sense of loneliness um, in that crowd that's not just romantic loneliness, but more of a deeper kind of social isolation, I think, of people who are really profoundly disconnected from community and family in ways that, um, well, I think probably have much more serious consequences than the fact that they like porn. What does that contribute to? Uh, why is this a part of the big white ghetto? That story has what I think is a kind of interesting interview in it with a woman uh, named Nikki Phoenix, who's a performer. And she was at that point just sort of getting started. And, uh, you know, careers in pornography tend to be pretty, pretty short lived, although she's still um, still working and, and doing modeling things. And it was just such uh, for me, a, you know, a kind of weird American suburban story of this, you know, really deep sadness where she had. Uh, She'd been a fat kid in school, uh, essentially, and kids were really quite mean to her. And they, her nickname was Sandwich, you know, that sort of thing. And she lost a whole lot of weight as an adult, and she really enjoyed the attention that she was getting. And so she started doing, uh, you know, kind of modeling stuff, and then eventually started doing pornography. And her version of her story was that this is a great triumph, that she's someone who really, you know, turned her life around and really wanted life. And I'm all for letting people determine their lives on their own criterion. Uh, I'm not really, you know, interested in passing moral judgment on her or anyone else in that way. But for a lot of other people, myself included, this doesn't look like a life that's turned out really all that great in a lot of ways. And she was, uh, she was being actually honored at the AVNs that year for uh, best crossover performance, uh, meaning someone who's a porn performer who was in a non-porn movie. And she was in some college comedy that I've forgotten what it was and no one ever went and saw it but her role is listed as topless chick uncredited you know and that's kind of been the uh, the apex of her uh, her career outside of pornography and there's a certain kind of sadness to that that seems to me emblematic of american life is there a, a through line is there any type of consistency with respect to how the people that you talked to and interacted with for uh this book uh 
in terms of political ideology? Is there anything consistent there? Well, mainly what's consistent is Americans don't really think about politics in those terms. Um, you know, our politics is it's just almost entirely tribal. So politics is like, you know, it's Ersatz religion, uh, where, you know, Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, we're Hutus and Tutsis. It's, you know, I'm this kind of person. And are you a good person like me? Or are you the other kind of person, which is a bad sort of person? And some people feel that much more intensely than others. And some people feel it much more mildly. Most people feel it most more, much more mildly outside of New York and D.C. and Los Angeles and a few other places. People are not as obsessed with politics as as we tend to think they are, although they're increasingly becoming that. Um, politics and that kind of political tribalism is becoming a bigger part of people's lives because it provides a sense of identity and a tribe to belong to, but also because it's become a big part of our entertainment, and um, which is mystifying to me because I watch you know Fox News every now and then or turn on talk radio, and all I hear is you know is Durka Durka Muhammad Jihad. It's like watching uh, you know that scene in uh, South Park, the uh, World Police. It's. I know they're speaking English at some level, but it doesn't seem to mean anything. People find that entertaining for whatever reason. So um, the political point that I would make and that I try to make as someone who writes for a political magazine is none of this stuff fits into our ideological narratives. You know, I'm a libertarian, someone who's always thought of myself that way, um, someone who's been in favor of drug legalization for a long, long time, as National Review has been. You know, National Review conservative magazine. But it's been a supporter of, of drug decriminalization since, I guess, the 1970s, uh, when Bill Buckley first started really talking about that issue. So I went to Colorado to write about their uh, legalization efforts up there and what that project was like. And I think it's the right policy. But we have this habit of telling ourselves, well, if people do the things that are consistent with my ideological preferences, then that'll solve all the problems. And there's still a lot of problems related to drugs and addiction marijuana smuggling, illegal marijuana cultivation, presence of organized crime, all that sort of stuff. Legalization has made some things better. And it is the right policy, I think, but it doesn't solve everything. And the world ends up being a lot more complicated than our ideological narratives would lead us to believe. So I think that's really the value of the reporting I do, is to go out and find the facts of the case and find the interesting little details about how life is actually lived. And then don't try to jam those into some sort of ideological sequence of preferences, but let the story actually tell the story. And my, my view has always been that if, you know, if what's actually going on in the world and your ideological stories are inconsistent with one another, then you have to change your ideological story because what's going on in the world is what's actually going on in the world. So this is a little sand in the gears for simple engineering solutions. Yes. Um, yeah, because a lot of these things are not... Um, not things that respond to policy. You know, other than marijuana, you know, a, a similar story, and it's also in the book, there's a big piece about, is uh, gambling, which, again, I take a pretty libertarian attitude toward. If you want to gamble, gamble, fine, that's your business. You want to organize a card game at your house, fine. But um, what's going on with gambling in America isn't the free market at work. It is a really predatory form of state capitalism in which municipal and state governments act as the dominant partner in a really, really sleazy business that um, creates no real value, but takes a lot of money from a lot of people. And uh, you know, I lived in Las Vegas for a while, and uh, I like the city a lot, although I don't really like casinos very much. But what gambling really looks like in the United States is not the Las Vegas Strip. It's these little places that look like abandoned 7-Elevens that have 50 video poker machines in them, where elderly people are parked as a form of you know kind of senior daycare, 
in um, communities all over the country. It's it's really ugly. It is economically destructive. It doesn't create any real value. And it is, um, I think, just genuinely pernicious. Lotteries, too, all that kind of stuff. And we tell ourselves these dishonest stories about them. Well, all the revenue from this goes to support education or veterans or things we care about or kittens and puppies. Everyone loves kittens and puppies. But it's all just money going into the same money pit. And, uh, you know, cash is fungible. Everyone knows this. And so we had this really long dishonest conversation about this, which has led people to believe in certain cities and places around the country that gambling is a viable model of economic development, which it's not. There is a ton of evidence that outside of the specific case of Las Vegas, it's been a net loser for everyone who's tried it, including Atlantic City, which has a really big casino uh, business, um, but other places that have smaller gambling operations. And we're a big, complicated country, and I'm glad Las Vegas is there. I think a country our size can afford to have a Las Vegas in it, just like it can afford to have a New Orleans. But you don't want the whole country to look that way. Kevin Williamson is author of Big White Ghetto, Dead Broke, Stone Cold, Stupid, and High on Rage in the Dank Woolly Wilds of Real America. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 